0: Modern journalism gets very hung up on the idea that it's got to say what's going to happen, which is nonsense, right? You don't find out what's happened, particularly in the elections, until the votes are counted. Your job is to show what's actually going on and how these political events are manifested in people's everyday lives.
1: Vox Pops are much maligned, seen by some as the lowest form of journalism. Just filler at the end of a news package on TV or radio bulletins, a tick box exercise to include different voices. But over the last 10 years, The Guardian's John Harris and John Domacos have discovered that Vox Pops, done thoughtfully, given time and conducted with an open mind, can unearth significant perspectives that escape the notice of opinion polls, think tanks or political advisors.
0: I've been here five years and I've had nothing but problem. Why did you come here? Um, because their
1: award-winning Anywhere But Westminster short films of chance encounters on Britain's streets have highlighted the real issues facing communities, given voice to people who rarely make the news, and brought their lives, concerns and struggles to the attention of hundreds of thousands of viewers. You,
0: know, you get into debt, I'm homeless, even though I don't look it, but I mean, I'm sofa-surfing. I'm a single parent. People like to judge, yeah? People like to judge. Yeah? From the color of your skin, from the way you dress, yeah, from the from from your lingo, yeah. I'm a carer. I'm yeah, a... that's what I was doing in London. Right. So you moved up here because you'd have better housing here, yeah. and you've ended up with no housing at all and no job. Yeah. I'm am a trained carer. And you could be doing the world For some eight good. Years. You could be For doing the world some I've good. I've got eight years
1: experience. Yes. <sighs> Man, I'm I'm <coughs> I'm crumbling. To find out how we might approach Vox Pops from a fresh angle, I spoke with John Harris, who started his career in the music press, and I began our conversation by asking how a music journalist gets
0: to also be a political journalist. Well, I was fortunate enough, really, to cut my teeth as a reader of the music press. And listeners to this, to this podcast, on the whole, may be too young to have a notion of what the music press was, right? it doesn't really exist anymore. But I I, uh, grew up in a world where there were three, four, if you include the Record Mirror, there were four weekly music publications. Sounds, NME, Melody Maker, and the Record Mirror. And they came out every week, most of them on a Wednesday. And you could just feast on journalism about music every Wednesday. But the thing was, I think, partly because there was so much space to fill, but also because of the nature of pop culture at that point, it wasn't just music that went into those magazines there was quite a lot of politics in there so during the 80s when i when i read um, the enemy and i read sounds you know there was a lot of political music so i didn't as a music fan and a reader of the press i didn't see that there was a sort of watertight distinction between music and politics they seemed to blur together and i was a very i had a very political upbringing i came from a, a sort of staunch labour party household my grandfather on my father's side was a South Whalian coal miner. I mean, it not get much more political than that, right? So it was always there. But I, you know, I just wanted to write. And I loved the world of magazines and newspapers, you know. And um, music was my consuming interest from when I started writing professionally when I was 19. Sort of all the way through, you know, I still write about music quite a lot. I mean, you join me today and I'm writing a piece for Mojo magazine about... um. The murder of John Lennon forty years ago, so it never goes away. But you know, by the time I was sort of twenty seven, twenty eight, maybe more like twenty nine, two things were happening simultaneously. Really, what what was known as Britpop, which was, you know, when the sort of music that I'd been involved in, as a journalist, indie music, had sort of gone overground and started to sell loads. That wave had crested, and it was sort of on the decline. I was about to leave Select Magazine where I'd been the editor. And I was also conscious, as strange as this may sound, that going to gigs every night and, you know, getting drunk and hanging around the music industry was not full time. it's was not maybe the most dignified thing to do when you were 30, you know. I just felt that that was something for younger people. So I wanted to branch out a bit. And um, I just sort of started to do it by, by sort of slowly combining writing about music with writing about other things. And I suppose I had my eye on writing about politics, but I didn't really know what that entailed. But that sort of eventually happened. It took a long time, though. So by sort of 2005, I wrote a book about politics called So Now Who Do We Vote For? And um, I was offered a contract by The Guardian not long after that. So it took, it took me about six or seven years. You know, I'm not a trained journalist. Didn't do one of those year-long courses. Can't do shorthand. No one's ever told me what a knock is any of that stuff I just sort of learned it by having to do it so, I mean you know Tony Parsons and Julie Burchill had gone from the enemy to being uh, journalists who wrote about pretty much everything and found a role for themselves in British newspapers so I suppose that was there as an example to some extent I mean I wouldn't sort of compare myself to either of them at all in the sense that they seem still sort of untouchable gods to me you know I've met them both now they're both great people in their different ways but for as long as the weekly music press was around, there was always this sort of conveyor belt to some extent. You know, people went on to other things. I could be wrong about this, but I don't think anyone had ever gone from being a sort of full-time journalist on the weekly press to being a a political journalist, capital P, capital J. But that's what I fancied doing. And as it turned out, you know, the sort of political journalism I, I ended up doing was quite sort of unorthodox anyway. So it's not like I left the music press, put on a suit and started interviewing Gordon Brown. It didn't really work like that.
1: You've been producing... Anywhere but Westminster films for for more than 10 years now, John. I think it's about 150 films. Um,
0: w- about 150 years, feels <laughs> Well,
1: was a, a long-running series, was that always the intention?
0: No, not at all. All of these things. See, you know, neither me nor John Domacos, who's the filmmaker and producer and journalist I work on anywhere at Westminster with, you know, we're not sort of conventionally ambitious people at all it's not like we sit there and have a game plan and you know like where will this take us you know the birth of the series really lay in the fact that we were getting so frustrated with um with what political journalism was and what politics was i mean this was sort of 2008 2009 so the financial crash had happened and there was this sort of anxiety and awareness starting to bubble through politics and journalism that you know all the certainties that had Held true in the 90s was starting to fade, really. And this idea of the the old idea of the centre ground and of, you know, a certain sort of voter who decides elections. And, you know, if you're going to be successful in politics, you effectively have to be Tony Blair or a clone of him, in the case of David Cameron. You know, there were a lot of these assumptions suddenly felt very fragile. And by the same token, standing outside 10 Downing Street on the 10 o'clock news in the dark with a little caption down the bottom of the screen that says live and going, I'm hearing from sources in number 10, just felt like rubbish. I mean, I've always thought to a lesser or greater extent, that's a pretty unsatisfactory way of understanding the world. But that really started to hit home. And we didn't really know what we were doing. We'd been sent to cover party conferences for a couple of years, which are pretty dreadful affairs. You know, you're sort of drunk or hung over all the time and you keep seeing George Osborne. It's not much fun, you know. And... Um, we just said, let's get out of here. You know, there was just one day we said, let's get out of here in Brighton. And we walked out of the turnstile around this great security barrier, you know, and said, let's go and talk to some people. And the Labour Party that day was going on about the squeeze middle. I think that was the in thing. So we just went up to people in Brighton and said, are you the squeeze middle? What do you think about that? And there was a guy fixing um, some phone wires on the street, you know, one of those boxes that has a BT logo on it. And he said, I hate all this concentration on the middle. I'm not the middle. I'm working class, he said. We thought, this is brilliant. This is much more interesting than being in there. And so the balance between the two things then shifted to the point that the amount of attention we were focusing on on men, largely in suits, shrunk. And the amount of time we were spending out in the world increased and increased and increased. And then by 2010, given that austerity had started, they then said, we'll turn this into a series. And so that became Anywhere But Westminster. Talking to people on the street, in quote marks, has always been a part of political journalism. But on the whole, it's not been done terribly well. So if you watch TV news, or for exa- or for that matter, read a lot of reported journalism in newspapers, um, you know, there are what's called the, you know, vox pops, the voice of the people. They're in there, but they tend to be very sort of cursory, and you get this sense that you know, a journalist is going up to someone in the street saying, have you got 10 seconds? And saying, whatever the, you know, presenting whatever is the issue of the day to them, you know, saying, do you think there should be a lockdown? <laughs> and then they say, no, I don't think there should be a lockdown. Right, that's good. Why not? Oh, it's a terrible idea. I think this is all faked, right? Next one, find someone of the opposite point of view. Do you think there should be a lockdown? Yes, I'm terribly worried about the coronavirus and I think I might die. Right, that's good. And then they run them in a, you know in a 30 second segment on the news you know or in a, a, a what amounts to a footnote in a written piece it doesn't tell you anything you know and what we discovered by doing it and we didn't know what we were doing you know i think initially we started throwing people against the wall and saying what do you think about jeremy corbyn or whatever it was you know and so this isn't really terribly satisfactory is it and more and more we began to say things like what's it like living here how you doing Tell me about your life. Do you work? How do you feel about the future? All that sort of stuff. And um, we didn't have suits on. Didn't have a camera the size of a house. You know, we were trying to freak people out as little as we could and put people at their ease. And it worked, you know. And then we would, we would um, if someone was really interested, then we'd say, have you got a mobile number? And they'd give us the mobile number and we'd then go back and see them again, you know, and get more of a sense of who they were. This sort of began to be our sort of technique, really. It was partly about people, but it was also about place. This is before Brexit happened or the referendum happened. It was about going to places that most of the media didn't seem terribly interested in. And we used the glory in that, you know. If someone said to us, why have you come here? We said, well, the fact you just said that is why we're here. They've that was the joke. What in the has? last few years, our government, they always do. They need to pay a bit more attention to what we need. Keep listening. There's a lot of crime, and it's down to the fact that people haven't got money provide the money for the police. the NHS, you look around, there's shops shopping everywhere. What's your job? I deliver parcels for Amazon. And do you make a living doing that? I don't make a living doing it at all, no. It's a job. Excuse me asking, how much do you turn in the average week? Um, my my top line would be about 500. And then I've got to pay for my van and my fuel and everything out of that as well. So you're nominally self-employed? Yes. But you're not really. No, they dictate when we can work and the hours we have to work. You don't worry about leaving the economy will tank and we'll have even less money than we've got now? No, no, because there's enough industry in this country. Let's bring it back, build this country again.
1: Is, is part of the difference in terms of what you do to those kind of formulaic vox pops, is it the fact that you don't have an idea in your head what the end product is going to be?
0: We never really know what the story's gonna be when we decide to go somewhere and when we start working. We sort of know why we're there, you know, like this film is broadly about Scottish independence or how people feel about the European Union or about precarious work or whatever it is. But where that's gonna take us, we don't know. In order to stop us worrying about wasting our time, we'll always sort of book in two or three things. Like in the course of a two or three day, trip to a place, you know, we'll book in some stuff, you know, we might go to the food bank or, you know, go, go to a workplace or arrange to meet somebody who's got something to say about something, but very often those pre-arranged things form a minority of what we end up filming because it's, it's done much more on the fly, you know it works, I think, because you, you sense that we're our curiosity is what's leading us through the story, not some sort of preordained idea of what the story is and interestingly of late i've had conversations with working people who work in tv and they've said well it it could never work like that here because you have to run it past three layers of people who are saying well you know tell me in detail what you're planning to do and all that otherwise it doesn't get signed off and we don't know you know people will say to us what what you doing and we'll say well we don't know and we honestly don't know i mean there's bits in the films where (laughs) You know, we suddenly find a sweet factory, in Wigan and we're gonna go. Oh, this looks interesting. Let's go in here and press the buzzer and I say, "Oh, I used to eat Uncle Joe's mint balls when I was a kid. Can we come in?" And the next minute, I'm having a conversation about the repercussions of Brexit with a guy who makes mint balls. You know, I mean, that's that's how it works. But I think that's probably why, when they, you know, when they really work, it's why people like the films. You know, because it, it implies a certain sort of humility. It's not like. I am in Wigan and I know everything about Wigan that I'm now going to tell you. It's like, well, I'm in Wigan and, whoa, let's see what we can find. That's all we know.
1: So, John, tell me about one or two of the memorable people that you've met during Anywhere But Westminster. You
0: have to bear in mind that, again, you see, unlike the orthodox media, we don't necessarily take people's names down. I mean, you know, we don't have release forms consent we ask people for consent you know we say this is for the guardian website and this is what's going to happen and all that right but very often we'll have a long conversation with someone and we might leave not knowing their name which i think is true to human experience i mean that's how it is right if you fall into a conversation with a stranger in the pub or whatever it's not like you i mean some people do they go by the way what's your name i don't you know and the reason i say that is the people i'm going to describe we sometimes only know them as (laughs) well it's one of our most fondly loved finds was a a fellow who lived in Jaywick in Essex who we now know is called called Frank right because we asked him finally but for years he was just known as Stepman because we met him sitting on a step and it seemed a bit intrusive to ask him what his name was I can't really explain that but, but he we met him in 2014 when UKIP and by extension Brexit were really becoming a thing and he lives in Jaywick which is quite a deprived or a very deprived part of Essex I think, uh many years running, um, a part of Jaywick has been um considered the most deprived council ward in England. There's a lot of poverty there. Um, but he, we talked to him about politics and his life, and he'd been a a railwayman in London, in East London, uh, before he moved to Jaywick, and he'd voted Labour all his life without question, and then from sort of Tony Blair onwards, he'd really started to question why he was doing that. And he said Tony Blair was more Tory than the Tories, and he would end up, ended up voting UKIP. And I would then say to him, well, why are you vote UKIP? They're more Tory than the Tories, are you kidding? And he'd say, well, I don't think they are, you know. They're going to make a few changes, something's got to change. And it was a very, very illuminating conversation which sort of embodied this sense that the old core of Labour's support of had broken away. Like, look at it all. You think you're a bit forgotten about it?
1: Well, yeah. Yeah, we're a backwater, aren't we? That nobody gives a shit about.
0: Time was Labour was the party of the working man, eh? Of course
1: it was. Of course it was. What happened? Eh? Bloody Thatcher got in fucking destroyed it, didn't she? Done done the working classes, didn't she? Pissed the miners off, done the railways, you name it. She pissed us all off. Big time.
0: The UKIP's full of people who think Mrs. Thatcher was the bee's knees. He's no fan of the trade unions and the working man.
1: Well I don't suppose he is. no is, are they?
0: But you someone with your politics shouldn't be voting for him.
1: Yeah, of course they should. <laughs>
0: And then in 2019, November or December time, we went back to Jaywick to try and find him. And he was there. It's quite sad because he, by this point he developed emphysema, he was quite ill. But he sort of reiterated all that and talked about why he'd voted for Brexit and why Brexit had to happen and why he wanted Boris to lead us out and how there's no way he was gonna vote for Jeremy Corbyn. He wasn't gonna help anybody. And he then he sort of became a, a a one person embodiment of this big story about the fragmenting of the Labour Party's traditional coalition, and he, in the final film we made of the twenty nineteen general election campaign, he has a very powerful role in it, and that's sort of what happens really. Because although to to me what he was saying seemed to be built on a lot of contradictions, the idea that you would think. Tony Blair was more Tory than the Tories and end up voting UKIP and all that. But to him, it made perfect sense. And I don't think my reality was any, his reality was any more or less valid than mine. You know, he was telling me about the world as he saw it. It was an amazing encounter. The second one, particularly when he was upstairs at his window talking to us in 2019. So he's a good example. There was a fellow called Charlie we met in Wigan. I do know his name, Charles Dale. When we met him, He'd had a terrible time on Universal Credit. He was running out of food. He'd run out of money. It was awful, you know. And um, he'd voted for Brexit. We had a long conversation with him about whether or not he felt conned. And he said, you know, it wasn't really what he'd voted for, but he thought the world had to change, and that's why he'd voted for it. And we went back to see him after he'd been put on a zero-hours contract and his predicament had got even worse it's a very sort of loquacious interesting fella anyway not that it's of any relevance journalistically but um he had a crowdfunder page go fund me page because he was in one of our films all the viewers sent in about ten thousand pounds which as far as i understand it sort of turned his life around he bought a car and got another job and all that he was another one but then it's also about place you know Place is almost as much of a thing as people, you know. They, uh, place almost becomes, it plays the role that a character would in a film sometimes. A place, I can't really explain how that works, but a place fulfills all the things that character does. And the most sort of um, revelatory experience I've probably ever had as a journalist was um, going on this road trip around the time of the 2016 referendum coming up country from south wales and having this increasing sense that leave were really in with a shout and then going to handsworth in birmingham which is a very diverse multiracial part of inner city birmingham and in my sort of liberal naivety i assumed that people of color wouldn't be voting for brexit you know and we met, met lots and lots of british asian people in handsworth who were voting for brexit in short order there's a bit at the beginning of the film where it's chucking it down with rain and for a laugh, I wind down the car window and ask the first person that comes past I said, are you voting in or out? It's a British Asian fellow and he says, I'm voting out. It's like, wow, okay. This needs investigating. So place is really central. We're very fond of Handsworth because you just find stuff out there all the time about which way the wind's blowing. Stoke-on-Trent we're very fond of. Where else? Middlesbrough we like. Loads and loads of places. The other One of the other mottos in the series is everywhere's good right so you know what i mean there's not such thing as a boring place if you think somewhere's boring and if you're a journalist you ain't doing your job properly because nowhere's boring the lesson really to my mind the lesson of the last 10 or 15 years of political history is that these are very different times from the times that they were in the 1990s for example when politicians could sort of manipulate people and pull strings you know and the public could be predicted to go certain ways and therefore the story kind of was Tony Blair and Alastair Campbell and Peter Mandelson. It was about the manipulators, not the manipulated, right? And then I think from the financial crash onwards, the public started to get very restive and unpredictable. And politicians were then in the position of having to run after them rather than the other way around, you know? And that's why this sort of political journalism, which is rooted in the everyday, rather than in centres of power, hopefully, anyway, speaks to the moment a bit better and that's something we've learned in the course of doing it, but I hope that's the case. Because, you know, constantly what some people call the mainstream media ho-ho, the MSM, seems to be confounded to a lesser or greater extent by what actually happens, you know. So they all thought Joe Biden, was, the blue wave would sweep through America. I'm not taking away the achievement of him having won. It's amazing. But, you know, it didn't turn out like the polls suggested. The 2017 general election didn't turn out like the polls suggested. Brexit didn't. You know, Scottish independence is something and people's support for it is something that a lot of the media, particularly the English English media, don't understand. You have to be out there talking to people, not getting your 45-minute briefing from a politician. You ain't going to learn much. Doing that.
1: Why is it that Vox Popping or this kind of interviewing tells us things that the
0: polls don't? So the first thing to say in answer to that is It's not about predicting anything, okay. A lot of journalism gets, modern journalism, gets very hung up on the idea that it's got to say what's going to happen, which is nonsense, right? You don't find out what's happened, particularly in the elections, until the votes are counted. So forget that. All you can do, really, is give a sense of what's happening. And that will point in certain directions. That's the limit of it. But it's not the limit in the sense that knowing that's sort of closed off and you're not there to say... I think this election is going to go this way or that way. Your job is to show what's actually going on and how these political events are manifested in people's everyday lives. The terms in which people talk about politics, how they intersect with what they're living up every day and all of that stuff. So that's what we kind of do. But in the course of that, you get a sense of what people feel strongly about. And that then can sort of give you some idea about what's going on. So, The reason Vox Pops work in that context, you know, I mean, I say Vox Pops, but conversations with people. The reason they work in that context is because it's partly about what people say, but it's also about how they say it. You know, journalism misses this, a lot of these things very often about the basic way in which we communicate. And so much of the way we communicate is about emphasis and gesture and all that. Right. So a good example. On that same road trip I talked about where we passed through Hansworth. We ended up in Colleyhurst which is the, the first bit of North Manchester outside the city centre. And there's a, a passage in the film we made where we meet two women in Colliehurst. And we start talking to them about Colliehurst had a rough time and how they feel about living there and all that. And then I say to them, how are you, how are you going to vote in this referendum? And, I get, and before I've even got the question out, they've answered me. So I go, how are you going to vote out? Like that. Whoa. Do you know what I mean? I've not asked someone a Question about politics in the last 10 years that I've got as emphatic an answer as an answer to that about. So that, whoa, okay, now we're somewhere different. That's really, really important. And it happens a lot. If journalists are going to talk to members of the public, you know, you need to know who they are and what they do for a living and how they feel about where they live and all that. But in the course of hearing those things, what we try and do is illustrate to people, I suppose, that things are always really, really complicated and very few people 100% fit any preordained stereotype. Everyone's complicated, with the exception of the sort of outer fringes of politics. You know, I mean, you do meet out and out racists, and for example, and you know, it's not just that you shouldn't empathize with them, it's impossible to empathize with them. But having said that, there are plenty of other people that you meet who may be voting for things that you find uncomfortable or difficult, Brexit's a good example. And you end up talking to them, And ideally, me as a journalist, I end up seeing where they're coming from. And then that should be conveyed to the the viewer or the reader. It's really, really important that. You know, when I was 15, if you'd have asked me, why do people vote conservative? I just, I'd probably had a stock answer, you know. They're selfish or whatever it was. I don't feel like that anymore. I completely understand why people vote conservative. It doesn't mean I'm ever going to vote conservative, but you know, I get it. And it's very, very deep and nuanced and textured for the same reasons that people who vote Labour have deep and nuanced and textured reasons. But equally, the other thing you have to do as well is sort of be humble about your own politics. So for example, in the case of Brexit, there was this idea on my side of politics, the Remain Liberal side, that we had this, we were the rational side of the argument, all rooted in facts, and their side was all sort of, the other side was all sort of emotional. Well, the reason I voted Remain was completely emotional. It's because of who my tribe is in politics. I'm a, you know, I drink craft beer and I like vinyl records and you know, I look at the world in a left-wing way, and so did my parents, and all of these things. You know, and I'm a walking stereotype in all sorts of ways. If you'd have asked me what the single market was, or certainly what the customs union was, I didn't have a clue. Still don't about the customs union, but doesn't doesn't make my vote any philosophically different from someone voting leave. So it's sort of a leveler, ideally. That's what it should. That's what it should do.
1: What's your advice in terms of having a good conversation?
0: Well, the, the key thing is not to start by talking about politics, because you know, apart from political journalists, nobody does that anyway, do they? It's not like you meet you, you go out for a drink with your. Fr- I mean, maybe you do, but or you meet you, go and visit your parents, and you say hello. What about what about Keir Starmer then? You say all right. How, how do you begin? You say all right. How are you doing right? So you start like that, really, and that's a lot of what we do. But they but we begin with very relevant questions. Will always say, "How's this place doing?" Or, "Tell me about your life." Or, "How do you feel about the future?" I mean, they're quite sound, quite banal, but they're you know they they're good questions. I think in the sense that they cut to what's important. Do you think has it got better or worse here? What's happening that's good? You know, what living here, what makes you feel good about living here? And on and on you go. And then, you know, if someone's got the time, you know, after sort of six or seven minutes of this, then you might say, how are you going to vote in the election? Or are you you paying much attention to the election or whatever it is? And then it becomes a more sort of authentic conversation because it is as well. It's not like I'm standing there reading questions off a list. You know, it, it does sort of reach the point quite quickly if it works. It doesn't always work. That you're sort of shooting the breeze with people. So that's kind of how you should approach it. And try and be... I mean, to some extent, it's a performance as well, right? You have to use humour a bit. No one wants anyone coming up to them with a face like thunder, do they? Saying, hello, I'm here to talk to you about the state of the country. I mean, oh, enough of that, you know. Whereas we'll say things like, we're dying here, please help, and then we can go home. And we start laughing, and then people start laughing. Help me out I'm having the worst day I've ever had. And we're not lying very often. I mean, that's true, right? That's, you know, that sort of opens people up a bit. And just be, you know, just be yourself. I mean, it sort of helps, I suppose, that I haven't got a suit on and, you know, I'm not using a cut glass received pronunciation sort of voice and all that. I don't know whether the BBC, for example, insists that people wear suits when they go out and do this. But that in itself makes it really difficult Because you're sort of the man, then, to use an old hippie expression. You know, you represent authority, whether you like it or not. And people are, you know, I'm not sure I'd stop and talk to a fellow with a suit, let alone a camera the size of a house. We have long since reached the point, which wasn't the case five or ten years ago, right, where people know what Vox Pops are. They know what they are, right, and they know what happens in Vox Pops. In certain cases, there's a bit of like, you're going to sort of make me feel sufficiently relaxed. I'm going to say something... It's politically incorrect, and then you'll think you've got your story. And But everybody knows, you know. And there's a bit in the film we made in Berry where I turn around the camera and say, we can't carry on doing this for much longer because everybody knows what's going on. There's a bit of film from Milton Keynes where we're outside this retail park and this kid comes past of about 11 or 12 and he says, are you doing one of them things about Brexit? (laughs) It's like, yes, we are.
1: Well, well, that's spotting. fair
0: do. That is absolutely fair comment. Have you got any money to eat and stuff like that? Nope. they stopped my benefit because i missed an appointment because I ended up in hospital. And because I didn't get no paperwork, they stopped my benefit. When did that happen? A week ago. I've got three months to go before I get any money. You've got people sleeping down the seafront, on the beach, in huts. It's disgusting. Well, I sort of hesitate to say this, but there's an awful symbol of Britain in 2019. The last thing on the land before you get to the English Channel is a tent where a homeless person is living. I don't know, I suppose I feel so anxious about the future of the country at the minute that I sort of find symbolism everywhere. I think everybody does. Like, oh, there's, there's, a, there's a sign of where Britain's
1: going. And how have you changed the way that you do your pieces to camera?
0: We don't really do any more orthodox pieces to camera. Um, I mean if anyone's sort of bonkers enough to watch the films we made in order which I I, even I wouldn't do right but if you were to trace out the process for quite a long time the films are punctuated by pieces that to camera by me which sort of follow the rules of television broadly speaking so I'll say things like Plymouth is a city of about 250,000 people on the south coast too easily forgotten about it's a fascinating place whose political trends are fully in line with those that are tearing up national politics. You know, one of those things, right? I don't think it gets quite as bad as walking along a crowd of people with a camera 50 yards in the distance, but I think we've probably done that on occasion. And we started to get really annoyed at it because it's ridiculous. And And it takes take after take. You know, when it's take 15 and you're on the street in the neat and saying, we've now reached the end of our election road trip, it's just unbearable, you know all these market traders were laughing at us shouting take 69 and all this you know so we don't really do that anymore what tends to happen is two things either what John calls over the shoulderology, ology which is when <laughs> it's trade secrets here folks which is when you talk in asides that are spontaneous as you would if you had someone with you it's interesting isn't it or god that's throwing me what they just said some of that or John There will be a voice, a disembodied voice, because he's operating the camera, but you'll hear an exchange between me and him, there'll be a conversation. So we'll come out of somewhere and he calls it, (laughs) he calls it reactos. He just means reaction. It's just a silly way of saying that, really. And he'll say, right, reactos, and he'll point the camera at me. And I've just got to say, well, that was interesting, wasn't it? Or that was terrible. Or now I feel really anxious or whatever it is. And it's much more spontaneous. And so it should feel conversational. It's true to the rest of the film in that sense, because the problem with the way it worked before was you'd have the people we interviewed being very spontaneous and sounding like regular people having a regular conversation. This is another thing TV gets wrong, punctuated by these very stagey scripted bits and they don't sit well together. You've got to speak in the same idiom almost as the people you're talking to. (laughs) (laughs) About this here. Keep <laughs> we're both quite sort of cynical, sceptical people but also we're very fond of um, finding positive stories and very wary of endless negativity as contradictory as those two things may sound they sort of sit together quite well I think a sense of humour is really important you know we have a world of in-jokes as you probably sense talking to me because that's the way you stay sane you know not complaining it's a great way to earn a living but you know sometimes it's quite difficult so those things are really important I think I think being sort of whatever that word is simpatico is kind of really important because there's no real clear division of labor I mean there is in the sense that I'm the person who's mostly on camera and he's the person who does the filming but in terms of conceiving what the film's going to do and where it goes and what we say and who we meet it's a completely collaborative exercise and it's quite rare I think in journalism to work as closely with someone else and i'd i'd recommend it if you can find the right person it's really good because it sort of um it checks your own sort of laziness and some of your own sort of knee jerk prejudices the fact that you're constantly having to run things past someone else and the same applies to them with you you know i think when it really works it makes for a stronger output journalism can be quite a lonely occupation and it's quite it's it's good to have someone else around there are certain things that having a camera with you sort of make really necessary. You have to kind of go the extra mile because you can't write your way out of things. See, writing is a luxury of, and I'm not talking about, this isn't me sort of validating everything Donald Trump tells you, right? It's not like you leave town and make stuff up, right? But clearly you can paraphrase people or you know sum up an experience and so on to get you out of a hole if necessary filmmaking you can't really do that either you've got it or you haven't and so it, it I mean the material you know so it makes you much more diligent it makes you a bit neurotic actually it's quite hard to leave town because you always think there must be someone else we can get here whereas with writing you can sense well I've got 600 words you know I've got enough to evoke this place I've had six or seven decent encounters you know there's a, there are more demands when you make films and I think that sort of carries over now into, into written reporting. It, implied, it involves much more of a commitment than I might have felt 10 or 15 years ago.
1: You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab, supported by Newcastle University.